0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The 2008 Tanner Lectures on Human Values presented by President Richard C. Levin and Yale's Whitney Humanities Center feature two lectures by Nobel Prize-winning physicist Stephen Chu. In this lecture, Professor Chu speaks on Golden Eras of Scientific Institutions. This is not going to be a science talk. It's going to be a talk on, the title is, is misleading. It's going to be a talk on, on how does one build institutions where you get a collection of people together. And you might ask, why should humans be interested in making a successful scientific institution? And as actually, oh, I forgot to do that again. Uh, um, so sorry that everything goes black, but this has an advantage. You can't get up to leave. Um, there, there have been uh, great periods of time in the arts, in the sciences, in literature, where a bunch of people get together and egg each other on and spur each other on. And certainly in 1850s and ni- 1860s, um, a group of French impressionists uh, got together and they really worked together, influenced each other, and exhibited together. Now, I should also say the same group, this is 1963 and 1863. Um, my my proofreader that's my wife uh didn't get to it in time but is there anything else in here okay you know we're okay now save sorry (laughs) okay um uh they got together uh, for a number of reasons, but uh, one of them was that uh, uh, they were not accepted in the Salon of the French Academy, and, um, and they were rejected uh, in the acceptance of their paintings. And so, in fact, there was an outcry. There's this famous Salon de Fusay where uh, they showed all the rejects. Uh, this is a list of some of the rejects. Um, and, in fact, they, they got together and unified uh, their own showings. But the point here is that in sometimes it occurs in the arts and literature where it's not a solitary piece of work and, and you can actually benefit. In science, it's I think it's much more so. the uh, picture of a lone scientist and Einstein going up in some corner and doing something brilliant is not really the true picture. In fact, I have a picture that... Uh, uh, great writers do go off and do something, it was, it was formed when I was um, a graduate student in part because my thesis advisor, Eugene Cummins, grew up in a very intellectual family. Uh, his mother was a pianist, actually his brother-in-law was Bill Bennett here at Yale for many, many years. And, and his father, Eugene Cummins' his father, was an editor. And he was an editor, in those days editors really worked very closely with authors. And Eugene Cummins was named Eugene because his godfather was Eugene O'Neill. And William Faulkner also spent a lot of time in the house. And they both drank a lot. And Cummins would tell me that uh, Faulkner would go there and he'd go up to the third floor and write always at night, and he had a few he had a pad of paper, a pencil and a bottle of bourbon and in the morning there would be an empty bottle of bourbon, a few pieces of paper that he had written on, uh, and, and his father would go through the manuscript and, and make markings and s- write down how this character wasn't being developed right now and leave those pieces of paper on the kitchen table with a new bottle of bourbon and the cycle repeated itself. So, uh, so I guess Faulkner didn't really need a salon or at least Saloon well, maybe, but not Saloon. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but um, I think scientific progress does uh, really spur ahead when a collection of individuals get together. And we've seen this in the development of quantum mechanics in various places listed here. Um, but many of those places only lasted as long as a, a, someone like a Bohr or a Heisenberg or someone who was there born was there. But there are a couple of institutions that lasted for many generations. In the case of the uh, Medical Research Council from Mole- Laboratory for Microbiology, the LMB, this is a place that stayed at the pinnacle of, of their peak of the perfection, of peak of their profession for 30, 40, 50 years. And in case of Bell Labs, perhaps for 80 years or so. so So the question is, how did research institutions like the LMB or Bell Labs actually remain at the top of their game for so long that transcended a generation, and is it possible to replicate those institutions today? So a quick history of uh, the Laboratory for Molecular Biology. begins in 1936. A fellow by the name of John Bernal begins to use x-rays that physicists had been working for to try to use these x-rays, bounce them off of crystals of proteins to see if you can get the structure of these proteins. And um, in 1937 uh, Ernst Rutherford who was the head of the Cavendish lab, that's the physics laboratory in Cambridge University, he dies and is replaced by uh, Lawrence Bragg who remains until 1953. Now here's Lawrence Bragg, William Lawrence Bragg as opposed to William Henry Bragg in, The two of them, father and son, shared a Nobel Prize. And this was good for X-ray crystallography in the Cavendish lab because that's how they got, Lawrence got his Nobel Prize. And, but he allowed uh, the physicists to start taking X-ray pictures of proteins. Um, And in 1947, the Medical Research Council says, hmm, this could be interesting, so uh, it, formally establishes uh, what they called a research unit for the study of molecular structure of biological systems, shortened later to molecular biology. And in 1953, it was a miracle year for modern biology. In that year, Watson and Crick determined the structure of DNA, and Proutz shows in the same year that it's possible to get the structures of big proteins and a near atomic structure by substituting heavy metal substitutions into these proteins. So this is the famous picture of uh, James Watson Francis Crick shared the Nobel Prize with Maurice Wilkinson and they're shown next to their DNA model. Uh, Wouldn't be complete in the history without showing Rosalind Franklin who took a key picture that showed that DNA was in the form of a helix. Now I also show you this picture because In James Watson's book, The Double Helix, he makes a point of saying that Rosalind Franklin was homely. So go figure. (laughs) Anyway, uh, who's calling the kettle black? I don't know. Um, In any case, um, so what happens is Neville Mott, a very distinguished physicist who shared a Nobel Prize in 1977, uh, succeeded Bragg in 1954, and he regarded these Physicists turning into x ray crystallographer biophysicists this is sort of this cuckoo's egg among this nest of genuine physicists, and he banishes the group from the Cavendish lab because he thinks these guys aren 't really physicists, you should go away and so that 's what happens and so they go into a little shack next to the Cavendish lab here 's a little shack, and there is the little group uh, and then from fifty four on they begin to look for a home now um, The irony of this is I had given, in 2003, a set of lectures both at Oxford called the Hinshelwood Lectures and the Scott Lectures at uh, the Cavendish Lab. And in the letter they invited me to give the lectures at the Cavendish Lab, uh, the director of the lab said they were particularly excited about me giving the lectures because I would help bridge the divide between physics and biology. And the irony, of course, is that uh, the Cavendish Lab made the divide. Uh, now, here's uh, a Google map of Cambridge. This is the center of Cambridge. And the Cavendish lab, lab started in the center, but it grew too big, and so eventually they had to move at out the outskirts. And so it's about a 10 or 15, say a 15-minute bike ride or 30-minute car ride to the Cavendish Lab. And that's the LMB. And they had to move out also from, they finally got a home from their little shack. And, uh, and now it's a long distance away. And so just, so you take this as a life lesson that administrators do matter uh, for good and bad. And the sad thing is, uh, uh, had, had they had a successor to Neville, uh, instead of Neville Mott, was again, a very distinguished, brilliant physicist, who would appreciate what these physicists were doing in biology, this would never have happened. Okay, so by 1957, lots of things are happening. John Kendrew uh, obtains low resolution pictures of bigger proteins, and um, the hypothesis of Watson and Crick is beginning to be verified, first by Arthur Kornberg, who, and all these guys got Nobel Prizes. uh, Kendrew, Kornberg, Watson. And so by 1957, Max Prutz says, makes a presentation to the uh, MRC and convinces them that they should build a little home. And this is their new home. It was an incredibly lavish space. It's 22,000 square feet. Um, this is the Queen of England who was, uh, actually came to dedicate the building. Um, this is John Kendrew. Max Prutz, who um, was actually the founder of this institute, wasn't there, neither was uh, Crick, because they didn't really uh, appreciate royalty as much. Uh, Ironically, uh, so they didn't want to show up, and so uh, Prouts' student, John Kendrew, is is there talking to the queen. Um, James Watson, who by then had moved to Harvard, um, did like rubbing shoulders with royalty, so he travels all the way back just to be part of this dedication. Now, it's an interesting dedication And there's John Kendrick demonstrating his model of myoglobin to the queen, and one of her ladies in waiting exclaims, oh, I had no idea we had all those little colored balls inside of us. So, in any case, uh, the LMB is, uh, this is, if you go to their website, you have all these characters, and uh, they all were awarded Nobel Prizes. This is a pretty small laboratory, and it was uh, considered a Nobel Prize factory. I should also say that there were many other people uh, who were visitors there, or students there, or postdocs there, and your own Sidney Altman uh, was there, I believe, as a student. So it's a very, very distinguished place. So let me uh, tell you a little bit of history of um, Bell Laboratories. Alexander Graham Bell invents the telephone in 1875. Uh, just in case Alexander Graham Bell is the person with the beard. <laughs> um, and, and the Bell system consists of many companies. And by 1900, there were 6,000 telephone companies in the United States. Half were Bell-associated companies, and the other half were independent competitors. But in 1907, the, the whole system—a Bell system—is uh, collapsing, and so uh, they were brought under the control uh, and unified by J.P. Morgan and his associates. Now. During this time, uh, they they actually hire their first physicist, a fellow by the name of Hammond Hayes, and he's the second PhD from well, it's the I think you're not allowed to use the H word over here, um, Harvard. I said it, <laughs> if you will forgive me, uh, and uh, he joins Bell Laboratories, and he you know he's their first physicist. And then he writes to the president of AT&T a couple of years later and says, would they be allowed to study problems which require a solution but are not studied as they will not lead to any direct advantage to ourselves? That's uh, a way of saying, can we work on longer range problems, not a, something that's immediately good for AT&T? And uh, they let them eventually, in 19... 19- in 2014, AT&T competes its first transcontinental telephone line. An essential component of this first transcontinental telephone line is electronic amplification in the form of a vacuum tube. And um, in this time, at t had 550 scientists, and by 1925, it began to grow large enough so that they officially formed a research and development arm of at called Bell Telephone Laboratories. And this is a picture of Bell Telephone Laboratories when it moved to New Jersey around 1950. Um, they did a lot of things. Uh, this is the picture of the first Nobel laureates of Bell Labs. Uh, it's actually an interesting thing. This person was not charged by doing basic research. He came to work on vacuum tubes for the military during the war, the wo- World War I. And after the war, he stays on. And And he's trying to understand the properties of these vacuum tubes, so he shoots a beam of electrons into a piece of nickel metal in a vacuum tube. This is what that thing looked like. And found, lo and behold, this beam of electrons would diffract off the surface of the metal, just like x-rays would diffract off a crystal. Except it was backwards, because x-rays were a form of light, essentially, and they were waves diffracting off a periodic lattice. All of a sudden, there were electrons, particles, diffracting off a lattice and looking like a wave, and uh, so they discovered accidentally that electrons were waves, and that was uh, awarded a Nobel Prize because that was a prediction of quantum mechanics of de Broglie. Bill Shockley joins in 1936 to work with Davidson, who by that time, um, I think by that time he got a Nobel Prize, and he shortly goes off to or work on a newly formed solid-state research group. So here's a picture of Shockley, Bardeen, and Bertin. These are the guys who invented the transistor, the the second set of Nobel prizes that the labs got. Um, Now, for those of you who are humanists, you have to understand, Bertin was the experimentalist of the group. Bardeen and Shockley were theoretical physicists. So you can ask, why is Shockley sitting here with his hands on an apparatus? And the answer is very simple. He was the department head And um, what did they invent? This is the first transistor. It's uh, a picture only a mother can love, um, and it's come a long way. But the invention of this transistor, which was a little skunk works operation at Bell Labs. Most of Bell Laboratories was concentrating on making better vacuum tubes. Because by then, you're putting these vacuum tubes in, in transatlantic cables, and these are hundred million dollar little adventures and you're not gonna dig them up anymore so it was very important to make these vacuum tubes last one year, two years, six years and longer. And for those of you in the audience who remember, I remember when I was a kid, the vacuum tubes in our television set wore out after about a year or two. I would have to pop them all out of the TV set, go to the hardware store, test them, find out which ones were weak and put them back again the TV would work again. And so Bell Labs wanted something that could last much longer and so they said, we'll, we'll, we'll invest some time and effort to try to get this to happen. It took nine years for them to develop the transistor, and in the, those nine years and the nine or 10 years afterwards, they actually laid the foundations of most of the entire electronics industry and uh, developed a very deep understanding of how electrons move in semiconductors. Um, here are some other Nobel Prizes. Uh, That are gotten from people at Bell Laboratories, uh, Penzias and Wilson, were actually looking at the sensitivity of radio signals that would be bounced from a satellite, from a ground station to a satellite back to a ground station, as because by that time Bell Labs was developing satellite communications, and these guys were working very hard at looking at what the limits were. That but they were very very good scientists and discovered that if you look at this telescope and pointing somewhere, everywhere, not Jupiter, not the Sun, but there seemed to be this uniform hiss, this radio noise that was coming from something. They didn't, again, just like uh, Davison and Gurman, they didn't know what it was until later um, they were told this may be the remnant of the Big Bang creation of the universe, and so on and so forth. Uh, Bell Labs has the basic patent on the laser. Art Shallow and Charlie Towns were the inventors. This is the maser, which is the precursor to the laser of Charlie Towns. This is a much better picture of Charlie Towns than his maser. Now, if you look at this picture, first of all, it somehow got to be gold-colored. I don't know how. Uh, you know, it's a, it was a piece of aluminum. For, uh, but, but you say, have I seen this picture before? Well, in actual fact, Charlie knew how important this invention was that led, eventually, to the laser, and in fact, Here's where you've seen this picture before. Uh, that's the importance of certain scientific advances. When I joined Bell Laboratories in 1978, um, there were a collection of us. There were about 30 of us who were hired within one year or two years of each other. We were all hired as students directly out of graduate school or uh, I was a postdoc. In fact, I would, had become an assistant professor at Berkeley uh, but they allowed me to take a leave of absence my first year, so I went toodling off to Bell Labs for two years. This is what I looked like in a long time ago. <laughs> in any case, um, these five people were all hired within one, two years of each other, and they all got Nobel prizes. And in fact, of that group of thirty that were hired, about half to two thirds of them are all in the National Academy of Sciences now. So this is remarkable because they didn't hire us as established scientists. They hired us as starting kids. Um, And I write uh, when I, uh, of the experience of showing up at Bell Laboratories, I was one of the roughly two dozen brash young scientists that were hired within a two year period. We felt like the chosen ones with no obligation to do anything except the research we loved best. The joint excitement of doing science permeated the holes. The cramped labs and office cubicles forced us to interact with each other and follow each other's progress. The animated discussions were common during and after seminars and at lunch and continued on the tennis courts and at parties. The atmosphere was too electric to abandon and I never returned to Berkeley. So this was the mood that we all felt uh, at Bell Labs in 1978. This is Bell Laboratories uh, when I joined I lived in a little, the original farmhouse of the area built in 1860, about here. I hopped the fence and walked to work, it was, it was heaven. In 1974, an antitrust suit was started against two large companies, AT&T Bell Laboratories and uh, IBM. And IBM effectively stonewalled the suit and and, uh, you know, the Justice Department said, okay, we need more information. And so they went out of their way to give them lots of information, literally truckloads full of it. Uh, Bell Labs um, decided not to stonewall it, and, uh, and they decided not to fight it. Instead, they decided to settle with the Justice Department and break up their monopoly uh, by divesting themselves of the so-called regional Bell operating companies. These are like Southwestern, Bell, Bell, South all those companies and they would keep bell laboratories the central core unit and western electric uh, the long distance unit western electric um i joined bell labs in 1978 and left in 1987 i remember the day of the announcement and it to me it was the saddest day in the history of industrial research because without the monopoly uh and as soon as AT&T started to compete um, in, with MCI and Sprint and all the other companies, um, I felt that it was going to be the beginning of the end. Now, I left in 87, and I didn't really think it was going to occur that fast, but shortly thereafter, by the early 90s, things did begin to unravel. Okay, so that's the brief history. So let's talk about um, what lessons we can learn from these magical places, the laboratories and... Laboratory for Molecular Biology. And first, and and these are things that many people know, you try to hire people better than you are, but when you hire these people, you treat them as your proteges, not as your assistants. And their success, and this was, when I was the department head at Bell, I was there nine years, and the last four years I was department head. And the people I hired became my proteges, they didn't work for me, they had their own independent research, but if they were successful, I was successful. And we were constantly on the lookout for talent, even when you're not allowed to hire. So let me give you an example. E.O. Lawrence, who is legendary at Berkeley and Berkeley Lab, he started the laboratory, uh, invented the cyclotron, this little accelerator he's holding in his hands. And he grew bigger and bigger cyclotrons. But the team he surrounded himself with was incredible. Uh, This is one of his bigger cyclotrons, 60 inches in diameter. And if you look at the people assembled in this picture, it was an all-star cast, including young scientists for them, who later went on to get Nobel Prizes. Robert Oppenheimer was in this crew. Uh, Robert Wilson, who founded Fermilab, was in this crew, and so on. It was an incredible all-star cast. Um, And he not only assembled people around him, and this is what one of his protégés said of him. He said, his cyclotron is to nuclear science with Galileo's telescope was to astronomy. He had the vision to glimpse at the limitless nature of the horizon and the generosity to make room for others. His personal credo was, there's enough research for all of us to do. He interceded with his rare persuasiveness to create new facilities for worthy projects. He rejoiced as jubilantly in the success of others as his own. As a result, the careers of many scientists, my own included, are founded on this large contribution and his generous nature. Indeed, so great was the opportunity he created that he was influential in training a significant portion of the present core of nuclear scientists. And this was said by Glenn Seaborg, another one of his protégés. He had an enormous impact in starting this laboratory. Um, Max Prutz had an equivalent impact in starting the laboratory at the LMB. And one of his early students was John Kendrew. uh, And so, for the humanists in the audience, There's a color code here. Blue means they went on to get Nobel Prizes. And so Max Prutz assembled with him young Turks, uh, graduate students, postdocs, uh, visitors, uh, and they all joined the laboratory very, very quickly. Now at Bell Laboratories, how did Bell Laboratories uh, manage to hire uh, the people they hired and to develop them? Well, in fact, they had some of their best scientists not some, but actually dozens of their best scientists, combing through universities uh, every year. Uh, I was a recruiter for Berkeley uh, when I uh, decided to say at Bell Laboratories, and twice a year or so I would go out, and there were about three or four other recruiters at, at Berkeley that would comb around through physics, chemistry uh, departments. And we were asked, okay, tell us who your hotshot graduate students and postdocs are, but not the ones that are going to graduate this year. Of course, we we wanted to hear about them, but we were actually, actually tracking the graduate students two or three years before they were going to graduate. And we would talk to them, and we would build relationships with them so when they were ready to graduate, they wanted to work at Bell Labs. Now, so that's good. So you have a very good applicant pool, and then you can select from that pool. And this is a tradition that started at the turn of the last century, uh, when AT&T Bell Labs hired Frank Jewett, who was the son of uh, Albert Michelson, re- remember the blue code, um, uh, m- he also makes friends with Robert Milken, uh, who's then an uh, instructor at the University of Chicago. And he asks, Jewett asks Milken to start feeding him to Bell Labs as best students who are also interested in electron physics because the center of the research at that time was to make electron tubes better. And so that's how we got a lot of these people. Now at Stanford, um, when I was there, it was a pretty distinguished place. Uh, In six years, um, sorry, in eight years, no, that's 10 years. Jesus. Okay. (laughs) This is like two-thirds is, you know, points, three, 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 okay. Uh, Any case, uh, in 10 years, uh, the uh, Stanford physics department was, uh, got uh, six Nobel prizes. And so that's a record that only the New York Yankees have matched. Uh, and Shallow recruited me and as soon as I, actually before I got to Stanford, but as soon as I decided I was going to go to Stanford, um, Doug Ashraf was going to go to the west coast because his wife uh, got a great job at Genetech and so Doug was gonna go to Berkeley and I would had to decide between Berkeley-Stanford and that H ward but but I decided finally to go to Stanford, and, and then immediately I turned around and said, Doug, why don't you come and join me at Stanford? And after a while, I was able to convince him. I have to confess, I was not able to attract Horst Storm and Carl Wyman to other friends. Even more embarrassingly, this yes. these guys are all before they got the Nobel Prize, but they were very good, and we all knew who was good. Eric Cornell and Wolfgang Ketterly, uh, um applied as a postdoc, and, My standard application at the time was, sure, I'll consider you. But um, only if you bring your own money. And so um, uh, they went somewhere else. Um, You know, oh well. So these two later got Nobel prizes as well. Um, So you know, you have failures. Now, normally faculty searches at universities begin when the dean gives you a position. And then you go out and try to find someone. And I was chair of the department twice, uh, once in 1990, 1993 and, and later 2000-2001. Uh, and in my second term, um, the uh, Condensed Matter Group began a road search. And what is a road search? They weren't really allowed to search. Uh, but they said, well, you know, eventually our turn will come. And they found a junior candidate who was midway through his first year as a Harvard fellow and, uh, and then he was good enough, we decided to hire him even though he wouldn't come to us in two years. Uh, and, and so this is what I mean by recruiting, you're always out on the hunt looking for people. Um, lesson, is continuation of lesson one, hire people not representatives of a field and, and let them spread his wing. And um, I talked to Sidney Brenner in preparation for these lectures, uh, I had gotten to know him because we've been on this board finding a, new Japanese university for a half a dozen years. And Sidney said of various people, for example, Angel Fire, he was so good, I left him alone and let him find his own way. You couldn't tell Andy Fire what to do. He said of a particle physicist uh, who was a student of Murray Gilmour, I put him down at a bench with worms and a microscope and told him to go. Bob Schulman, who's here in the audience, uh, an NMR expert and formerly from Bell Labs, wanted to learn more about biology and genetics, and so he came to the LMB on sabbatical. So you had this eclectic mixture of people. Um, Sidney goes on to say that nobody was a professional. We were all talented amateurs. We attracted the best and our job was to create people better than ourselves and other senior people. And he then goes on to say the most the best, most daring are the youngest, but then they become middle-aged. And what happens after six years? And this is Typical Sydney Brenner: Grandparents get along better with grandchildren. So I guess after six years they become middle-aged people, and then you do, and, and they don't listen to Sydney as 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 uh, as carefully. Uh, and uh, then he goes on to train uh, another generation. I think that's what it means. <laughs> anyway, let's say more on amateur scientists, and this is another one of the early pioneers at LMB. When the war finally came to an end, I was at loss as to what to do. I took stock of my qualifications, a not very good degree, a knowledge of certain restricted parts of magnetism and hydrodynamics, neither subject for which I felt the least that bit felt for which I felt that least bit of enthusiasm. It's a not that. Only gradually did I realize that this lack of qualification could be an advantage. By the time most scientists have reached the age of 30, they are trapped by their own expertise. I, on the other hand, knew nothing, except for a basic training, somewhat old-fashioned physics and mathematics. Since I, was since I essentially knew nothing, I had an almost completely free choice. How's that for a liberal arts education? And liberal arts is the best education because what it trains you to do is to train yourself, to teach yourself, to go on to other things and Francis Crick had this type of education. So, great institutions try to instill in their young protégés high self-expectations. It's the self-expectation that keeps you up late at night working with yourself and others. And I, again, described, Bell Labs management supplied us with funding, shielded us from extraneous bureaucracy, and urged us not to be satisfied with doing merely good science. My department had told me to spend my first six months in the library when I first arrived at Bell Laboratories and to talk to people before deciding what to do. A year later, during a performance review, he chided me, don't be content with starting anything less than, don't be content with anything less than starting a new field. I responded, I'd be more than happy to do that, but needed a hint as to which new field he had in mind. I was a wise guy then. Um, and it, but it was really true. It was actually a bit unnerving, um, where people would put this burden on you and, and said, we don't want you You know, I sort of had an idea of what I wanted to do. Uh, it was related to high energy physics. They certainly didn't want me to do that. So they were trying desperately to get me interested in condensed matter physics, which I did get interested in, but um, but this burden of, of of doing something great. He actually told me, he said, you know, Steve, if you fail at Bell Labs, it will be your fault. <laughs> he says, you have you, people at Bell Laboratories have everything, they have the environment, they have the resources, da 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 da. So go for it, you know. It uh, you know, there's probably better ways of encouraging people. It was a little bit scary, but anyway, but that was the attitude. Uh, that they expected something of us. And as I said before, the LMB and Bell Labs almost never hired senior scientists, and they preferred to homegrown them, grow them. And uh, uh, it, it remains, well, there is no Bell Labs today. I don't know about the LMB. Uh, Aaron Klug was a young man, and here's another eclectic um, background. He first wants to go and work at uh, the MRC with Poots and Kendrew, but they were full. And so he wants to work with Lawrence Bragg uh, on some, you know, order disorder phenomena, but uh, he had just shut it down. So finally he ends up with, uh, as a student of uh, Hartree, all very, very famous people. This is at the Cambridge lab. And so he works on a problem, a theoretical problem, on the cooling of steel, okay? and. Again, he says, it's very much like Crick. I ended up using numerical methods to solve the partial differential equations for heat flow. I learned a good deal during this time, particularly in computing and solid state physics. But afterwards, his real love is not studying the cooling of steel. Uh, he, drifts in, he goes back, uh, he was interested in biology. He goes back and meets Rosalind Franklin and joins in her structural studies for the tobacco mosaic virus. And by that time, he's a young man. He, they recognize in This guy is truly extraordinary, even though his thesis was um, uh, a pretty dull topic. And he gets recruited to join. OK, so, so this, this scenario gets played over and over and over again, both at Bell Laboratories and at LMB, that they didn't really care what you did. Even if what you did was outside their real interest, if, if, if they thought you were smart, then they were trying to hire you. And this is something um, that uh, uh, doesn't often happen that departments actually hire to fill a particular subfield. Um, and even, and maybe, maybe one has to go even beyond departments. Okay, another thing is that young scientists need courage um, courage to do things that the wise heads think uh, might not work. And Charlie Towns, uh, he's uh, the co inventor of the laser and maser, uh, describes that in the early 50s, he was visited by the chair of the Physics Columbia, Columbia Physics Department and I, Robbie, the former chair, both very distinguished physicists, both getting Nobel Prizes, and they told him that he was wasting his time trying to make this funny maser thing and give it up. In those days, the department was block funded, the whole department got a hunk of money, and the chair of the department decided how to parse it out. And um, He didn't listen to them. He said, I'm going to go and do my own thing. He had tenure. But the good thing about this is that Cush and Rabe still let him continue, even though he he didn't drop it. This continues, actually, that many famous physicists didn't believe in what he was doing. And he was, later Charlie recalls, that Niels Bohr and um, John von Neumann, after the experiment was working and after it was published, remarked that uh, what he did was impossible. And um, you know, he said, no, no, it, it really worked. And Charlie's a very quietly confident person. He said, no, it, it, it's really working. And he said, no, 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 it violates the uncertainty principle. Um, in the case of von Neumann, he comes back in a you know, cocktail party when he's told this, and he comes back 20 minutes later and he says, you're right, it works. Um, anyway, it did work uh, before uh, von Neumann said it worked. Um, Sidney Brenner says, in the early days of molecular biology, we were focused on how, how did nature get information uh, out of the gene to make proteins. Uh, this was something he and Crick were really very focused on, and he recalls none of the wise has believed we could do this. And in my own career, uh, similar things happened. When I moved from Murray Hill to Holmdale, um, I began to talk to Art Ashkin socially, and moved there in 1983 and I began to realize you know the work art started he dreamed about trapping atoms since 1970 and uh, an effort was started and it continued for about eight years and then afterwards uh, management shut it down they they weren't making enough progress they didn't see how you could really get there and um, And I started, uh, after talking to ash and doing calculations, wondering if a new look at the problem, and I decided uh, in a couple months that management was right to shut it down. It didn't look like you were gonna be able to trap atoms. And then uh, there was uh, an afternoon in 1984, uh, there was a big snowstorm outside. They told us over the loudspeaker, you should all go home because you might get snowed in. And and I stayed. uh, and while I was there, I realized that if one could cool down the atoms first in the manner that uh, Shankar described, they could get very cold, move very slowly, and even very feeble forces can hold on to this, um, these atoms. And I told my uh, boss, who was a division director, I was a department head, and I said, I said, Chuck, this is fantastic, this is gonna work, it's finally gonna work, and he's kind of looking at me, his eyelids are going down and uh, didn't look very impressed, and finally said, okay, Steve, you can do this, but don't try to talk any of the other people into wasting their time as well. Uh, and so after seven months, it looked like the experiment was really gonna work, so I would go, psst, come on, it's gonna work, and, and so um, John Bjorkholm joined in later art. Um, um, I, it actually worked very quickly. Within one year after the original idea, We didn't even have a vacuum chamber. I scrounged an old surplus chamber that was going to be donated to the university, pasted it all together, working furiously. Um, And in one year, I sat down to write the first draft of the so-called optical molasses paper, which is the beginning of all this stuff. Uh, Now the optical trapping of atoms, in a certain sense, is very related to, um, first, some philosophy, you should act now and ask for forgiveness, so I did recruit these people. Uh, but the other thing is that the trapping of atoms was related to lessons in static electricity, so I'm quite, I was quite fond for a while of showing this cartoon late at night, and without permission, Rubin would often enter the nursery and conduct experiments in static electricity. So I think um, uh, many times uh, in science you, you have to do things like that. You, you, you do things on the slide. Okay, there's another lesson. Uh, Maximize your chance for making a great discovery by developing and using the new technology in interesting scientific problems. And this is a very simple philosophy that I learned when I was a graduate student at Berkeley. If you're the hundredth person to look under a rock, you will probably not find anything new. But if you find a new rock, or find a new way of looking under the old rock, you don't have to be that smart. Okay, and you just look and you'll see something. And there's, uh, as Yogi Berra, the great American philosopher of the 20th century would say, you can see a lot by watching. So um, when I was a graduate student, a new invention was made. It's um, a laser which you can adjust the frequency and turn it onto atoms and excite them at very precise tunable frequencies. This is an example of a laser developed at Stanford in the 1970s. And so this is me when I was a graduate student. I was, this is a homemade laser. I uh, actually went to the machine shop and made all these parts uh, because we were poor. And, and at the time, I was working on an experiment to test a, a theory that unified electromagnetic weak nuclear forces. And my real forte in that time was not a deep understanding of quantum mechanics or anything like that. It was actually I was good at building lasers. This is another laser I built while I was a postdoc. It was used in another experiment, Um, and it was this big contraption now. And finally, it generates ultraviolet light and goes into a wall. In those days, you could do a lot of the things yourself, and so so one room had the laser, and the other had the experimental apparatus. And we punched a hole in the wall by just getting a hammer and chisel and knocking a hole. You know, safety people would go crazy these days, and um, and so light would go through here, right in the open mouth. uh, my thesis advisor decorated the hole with a, with a cartoon. And so um, by the time I left Berkeley to go to Bell Labs, I knew, I didn't know physics, but I knew how to build dye lasers. And I knew that this wonderful technology could enable you to do a lot of neat experiments, like testing high energy physics. This gets played over and over again. Max Prutz, as he starts the LMB, starts a mechanical and electrical workshop Aaron Klug uses, goes into the laboratory, makes a, the first equivalent of a confocal microscope, a very important machine. And Sidney Brenner recalls, we developed most of the technology we needed, computers, rotating anode machines, automated processes for higher food ourselves. We found we needed it, we went and made it. And um, this is a picture of two computer scientists holding paper tapes that control had numbers, and that these numbers were, uh, the output of an electronic computer. It was the first generation of this electronic computer was the first electronic computer in the world. And it had a memory of 1,024 locations. Amazing. And, and, and they were just showing the calculations of, of the phases that enla- enable them to get the first uh, uh, high resolution, near atomic resolution, of a protein molecule. And so again, they were pioneers bringing in the latest, greatest, new thing from very, very different fields. Okay, people stimulate each other, and top managers should be top practicing scientists. Um, Why should the top managers be uh, active scientists? Well, they understood the science, and uh, it was my job as a department head to skim a lot of these memos that were being floated around, and I would say, okay, this is kind of neat. Maybe this person should read this or that person. So you'd shove it. Now you, it's, it's gone too far overboard. You do this by email, and then you get flooded with too much stuff. But in those days, it really worked. Um, we were encouraged to connect with members of our departments and other people's departments. So as managers, we were encouraged to learn as widely about what was going on in the labs as possible so that you could be some sort of glue and say, you know, you should talk to so-and-so over here because uh, they're doing something that um, is directly relevant to what you're doing. And the big thing, as in with uh, the LMB, is that lunchtime was a major social and techno- technical event. Um, but Murray Hill and Holmdale were in suburbia they you couldn't go out of the laboratory and walk to a restaurant, so everybody either uh, brought their own lunch, or they ate the cafeteria. And even the people who brought their own lunch actually took it to the cafeteria. And in the cafeterias, in those days, in, in Murray Hill, there are these big round tables that could seat about ten people. And you sit down and you say, okay, what's new? And you talk about what's new in science, what was happening around. And then people would leave, and then other people would come. And it's much like the colleges at Oxford and Cambridge. And this is a rotating thing. And you could stay as long as you wanted. If you were really busy, you would only stay half an hour. If if the conversation got really interesting, you would stay an hour, sometimes longer. And that's how you learn what was being done at Bell Laboratories and what was being done in the wider world. It was chatting while eating lunch. And this continued in journal clubs and tea time. Almost the identical thing happens at LMB. Max Proust writes that experiences taught me the laboratories often fail because their scientists never talk to each other. Most laboratories hold seminars where the scientists report their own work but they're often attended only by those scientists by those scientists own group to so ensure that everyone is aware of all the work in the lab. Crick instigated an annual week of seminars which used to be known as Crick Week to be attended by all members of the laboratory. He used to dominate by his searching questions and sharp comments, and it was a sad day when he left us to the Salk Institute. Louis Alvarez, another dominant intellectual figure, actually assembled uh, this group at night in his home, and that he would like, in it's a tradition of a salon, actually, like Crick, would, would, would start these conversations, but it was in those settings that uh, uh, news traveled and people thought critically about what was going on. Now, Proutz uh, said the research at the LMB was paramount. and placed way above disciplinary boundaries and course curricula. And again, uh, he realized that cafeterias were where the action was. And so he put his wife in charge of the cafeteria. And, and, um, and he himself personally invested a lot of time to make sure that people would go there to eat, that there's something that would bring them there. He also insisted that the equipment, should be shared rather than be guarded as personal private property. And so media and glassware cleaning service were centralized, all these things. Radical in those days, more standard today. And when the new building project ran short of funds, he suggested the money could be saved by leaving locks off the doors to symbolize the absence of secrets. When I learned about this, I was thinking of Bell Laboratories, and I couldn't remember which laboratories ever were locked, or offices. Now that was very important because it would be midnight and something would go wrong in the lab, a lock-in amplifier would be, piece of equipment would break, and I would go running around trying to find it, and the ethic of Bell Labs was very clear. If a piece of equipment wasn't plugged into a person's experiment, but was on the shelf, you know, just sitting there, you're allowed to take it, you leave a little note saying, I took your piece of blah, 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 I'm in room so-and-so, here it is. And that was, you're allowed to do that. You know, as long as you had self-identified yourself. And uh, it was amazing. Uh, uh, locks on doors don't allow that. Um, more on organization and management. Uh, Prude said, I was persuaded by the Medical Research Council to appoint me as chairman of a government board. They wanted to make him the director. But he said, no, no, I want a governing board. And the governing board was to be made up of Crick, Kendrew Sanger, and myself. All the Nobel lords. It's a pretty powerful governing board. The board met only rarely and left me free to pursue my own research. Seeing the chairman standing at the laboratory bench or an X-ray tube rather than sitting at his desk set a good example and raised morale. The board never directed laboratory research, but tried to attract, but tried to attract or to keep talented young people and give them a free hand. My job, says Proutz, was to take an interest in their research and to make sure they had the means to carry it out. So news travels, and this is becoming a very, very famous organization. And sometime in the, I think it was the the 60s, um, uh, a delegation from the Soviet Union comes to Cambridge and says, I want to see this famous Institute of Molecular Biology. So, oh, actually this was before. This was when they were in the hut. And so I took them to our shabby prefabricated hut in front of the university physics department called the Cavendish Laboratory. And they huddled and finally asked me where do you go to work in winter? <laughs> uh, they wanted to know how I planned our successful research unit, Imagine that I recruited an interdisciplinary team, as Noah had chosen, the animals for his art two mathematicians, two physicists, two chemists, two biochemists and so on, and told them to solve atomic structure of, uh, of living matter. They were disappointed that the unit had grown haphazardly, and that I left people to do what happened to interest them. And so Again, they didn't hire in subfields. They just hired smart people and said, go. And they did have the advantage that they had long-term funding, and Bell Labs had that as well. And long-term funding allows you or allows the correct scientific leadership to invest in risky outcomes. And John Solson, another Nobel laureate at LMB, said it took Max Cruz 23 years to solve the structure of hemoglobin at the atomic scale. And many chemists and biologists thought he was wasting his time. You didn't and still don't have to justify everything in advance. You were, you were just given the time, a limited amount of space, and resources to get on with it. And space, in those days and continues to be the highest coin of the realm at LMB. And so, Sid and Brenner says everybody worked in the lab flies, rats, physicists, chemists, all going in the same direction. We were attracted by an extremely talented group of postdocs. Turf was not divided, and they can do what they wanted. All directions came from science. We didn't build machines and wait for people to come. Central important problems was what unifies people from dis- different disciplines. And he goes on to talk about improvisation, because in the early days they were poor. And actually, improvisation is is, is something very nice. When I was a student and postdoc, my Eugene Cummins' group was was poor in that picture that. Um, the first laser I showed you was actually a lot of it was scrounged parts. I would go into the surpluses, uh, equipment places of, of uh, especially the weapons lab, because they had a lot of money, and they threw away a lot of good stuff, um, and build it out of parts like that. And so uh, Brenner says that for a cultural prep, just shortly after the war, war he thought he'd be clever, and he didn't have the resources. You know, you have this warm, gooey stuff of bacteria, and you shake it around, and uh, so he talked a company into giving him a washing machine to grow the bacteria so the washing machine would shake around. He said it worked for a little while, and then and it just turned bad. <laughs> it, for those who are not growing bacteria, it doesn't smell so good. And so uh, here's Aaron Klug, um, and he also says there were no individual budgets that you give to a particular subgroup. Uh, we just monitored usage, and in the end, it was cheap relative to our output. That was also true of Bell Labs. I wasn't given a hunk of money every year. If you really tended to overspend, they, you know, you, or someone in your group overspend, you'd call them and say, well, what are you doing? You're going a little crazy here. But we weren't saying, here's X amount of dollars, this is yours, and go spend it. So you spent what you needed, and as long as everybody uh, didn't take advantage of the system, it worked. And again, you need good scientists to say, you know, what are you doing (laughs) this for? Why'd you buy that? But mostly, uh, you're on the honor system, and it did work. Um, The with this kind of budget, it makes people bean counters very, very nervous. And so Klug says he was uh, another guy I've gotten to know um, over the years that they would ask us what hypothesis we were testing. Actually, a lot of time we weren't testing any hypothesis. We were just exploring. Now, there are pressures of accountability. You had to practically tell them what you were going to discover. This is actually quite funny. In my last uh, couple of years at Bell, after the diverse vestiture, the second to last year, they came an edict down from high management. And, and they, um, they said, okay, what is it you plan to do and what is it you plan to discover? Literally, they asked us, what is it you plan to discover? And so we sat down and huddled and, you know, we so we made a list of things like uh, 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 room temperature, superconductivity, the meaning of the universe, and just a list of things, and just sent it back up the line. Um, never were asked again. In any case, on <laughs> an organizational structure, both at Bell Labs and l and large groups were forbidden. For each group, leader, there was a team of two or three people and a few visiting fellows. Uh, At Bell Labs, it was actually uh, even more stringent. If you were an average scientist, you can have either a technician or a postdoc. If you're really good, you can have both. If you're not so good, you can have neither. And then your job was to, okay, look around, work with other people, and figure out what to do. So huge megagroups were discouraged, and as Sidney Brenner said, we continue to need to discourage these, what he calls, supersized labs. Uh, according to Sydney, they have low output, input, high throughput, no output. I wouldn't say that, but but there is something. Uh, once you start having a group of 20 or 30 or 50, um, you spend most of your time talking to your group members. And when you have a group of 50, you might not even have much time to do that. So uh, another to tell you of the atmosphere, and these are I could sit there and tell you these things myself, and uh, but I'm just trying to show that many of the people uh, at Bell Labs had exactly the same impressions. This is taken from a, a Ronald Graham, a quote from Ronald Graham, a brilliant mathematician at Bell Labs. Typically it takes someone one or two years to learn the ropes well enough to get a feel for what goes on and how to function in this environment, to get plugged into various networks around here. One might mention a few problems that are floating around. One difference between Bell Labs and a university is that here, more or less, everyone comes in every day and the office doors are open. I should say, in in a university, one dean at Stanford remarked that he felt like the commander of the Strategic Air Command. At any one moment, a third of his faculty were in the air. So in any case, there is a lot less feeling that the problem I am working on is my problem, and I'll tell you about it when I have dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. And so this was absolutely true. When I was at Bell Labs, ideas were actually cheap. There were, it, it was in the air. And I was constantly, since I only had a group of one postdoc and one technician, I can only work on one and a half experiments at any given time. This experiment had my full time. And this was kind of simmering. And then I would do really exploratory stuff you know, in weird times. And I was constantly adjusting what I wanted to do uh, based on where I thought the impact might be. And, and everybody around me was doing a similar sort of thing. There were a few individuals who were, were kind of marching along for, for a, uh, a long time on one thing, but, but most of us were juggling. Uh, I was in fact considered one of the individuals that, that stayed on a project for two or three years, that, which was a rarity. But the most important thing was if you got a good idea, you'd go and you'd talk to a friend. And I would pop myself in front of Doug Oshara's office and say, hey Doug, I got this idea this is what it is, what do you think, and I talked to a few other people. And, and he, you know, sometimes I would get the answer, that's a great idea, it was done five years ago. Most of the time I got it, the answer, that's a really dumb idea, it's not gonna work, this is why it won't work. And once, you know, five out of a hundred times, they might say, hmm, maybe you have something. And then you could explore it. And you weren't afraid of getting ripped off. You weren't afraid of, of including someone else on, in on the idea at its very very beginning stages. And when you have an atmosphere like that, tremendous things happen. And that was what we had at Bell. Um, now, when I got to Stanford and I started to going using the well, I started going to uh, biology single molecule studies. Um, uh, then I. Um, I was recruited to, to help start a multidisciplinary thing at uh, University of Chicago in 1997, and, and uh, uh, I decided in the end uh, I uh, couldn't leave for personal reasons, and, but I, I said, well, look, I gathered Lucy Shapiro, Jim Spudish, and Dick Zare, three friends of mine, into my office on a Saturday, And it said, well, look, this is what the University of Chicago is trying to do, but you know, they have to recruit a lot of the pieces. And if you look around Stanford, we have most of these pieces. And so, uh, can we actually get together and do this? Um, So, that occurred, that meeting occurred in 1998. We all agreed that this is a good thing. We started writing drafts of a proposal. And within um, a few months, uh, the uh, management, uh, the provost, Connie Rice, and the President Garrett Casper agreed this was a good thing and they were going ahead with it. Then Condi Rice left to join the Bush administration and was replaced by John Hennessy, who found a lot of money and off it was. Uh, uh, so this is the so-called Clark Center or the BioX Center. And uh, and I was in preparing these lectures, I looked it back in my old records of these early drafts, and so this is this early draft that I wrote you know, the usual sorts of things, the frontiers normally, dis- of several normally disconnected areas of study are being com- are converging. And so I listed what we could see, what were some of the goals of what we wanted, in biological systems, and maybe this nanoscale in the uh, electronics world can be linked to the nanoscale of the bio world, and this is great. And then I wrote, the call for mid- multidisciplinary research uh, with increased collaborative efforts, is becoming popular in Washington. Despite Washington's enthusiasm, it's still a good idea. My uh, friends decided they were going to take that out, <laughs> so wiser heads prevailed, and so we but, so we sent them something not quite as as uh, well uh, irritating, but um, so so BioX was an attempt to to create. Uh, sort of a Bell Labs environment within a university structure, and I have to say that was only partially successful. Because we couldn't tell a person, a brilliant person like Dick Zare, who had about 35 people, um, nope, you can't be part of this effort, because he was really brilliant. Uh, We did try to uh, limit the size of the groups that went into the building, although the biox was much bigger than the building. And, um, but the group structure of 10, 20, 30 people uh, was still a problem. and Whereas if you look at LMB and Bell Laboratories, if you only have a few people, and then you're forced to collaborate. And, and oh, by the way, um, if you only have a few people in a little bit of space, you're on top of each other. And you're forced to learn about uh, what each other was doing. So it's not only the cafeteria. It, it, it's, it's actually those constraints. And so uh, there's another noble attempt being designed to duplicate what was magical in LB and uh, Bell Labs. And this is uh, the Howard Hughes Medical uh, Institute. Uh, they started a new research institute called Janelia Farm. Um, and Jerry Rubin, who is um, who's a student of Sidney Brenner, and also a UC Berkeley professor and member of the Lawrence Berkeley Lab, and he says, our vision of the building, Our vision of building a new model of research. Community, we have created nothing original but have but rather have made use of many aspects of various models worldwide and if you go to their website what do you see? You see a picture of the LMB and Bell Labs and they make it quite clear we want to do that again. Um, Eric Kendell, another Nobel laureate says academia is a system where in which individuals must, of necessity, distinguish themselves from their colleagues, and which does not reward scientists for collaborating. Janelia Farm seeks to create a unique research environment where gifted investigators interact with each other and are rewarded for working together to achieve a higher goal. Research being done at Janelia Farm be, should ideally be more than the sum of its parts. So, so. We'll see how the experiment goes. They they do since it's Howard Hughes Foundation. They have um, very stable funding. I hope it remains stable after the economic um, thing that just happened. Uh, but um, it's uh, they they really want, can imitate uh, what it was happening at L&B and Bell Labs because they're hiring young scientists, and they're only they're limiting the size of the group to a half a dozen or less. And so this is all you're going to get. And other, if you want to do more, work with others. Um, now, I want to move and say there's something else about what was happening uh, at Bell Labs. And it was what we call mission-oriented research. In the end, it was mostly about communications. And if you look at what was Bell Labs was producing in the 20s, 30s, and throughout, you know, the photovoltaic cell was invented at Bell Laboratories, and information theory, as well as the transistor. Radio astronomy was discovered at Bell Laboratories. Uh, Oops, that's a misprint. It was discovered in the 20s, not the 30s. The laser, charged coupled devices, which are what are used now in all the digital cameras were invented at Bell Laboratories. C programming language, cell phone technology was invented at Bell Laboratories, and so on and so on. Incredible output from the 20s to about 2000. The pushing of technology, if you work on technology and what happened during World War II was a lot of brilliant physicists were were enlisted to work on the radar. And when they went back to their labs after the war, they actually used this technology to do many, many things in radio astronomy, nuclear magnetic resonance, masers that led to lasers and lots more stuff, the klystron, which led to high energy physics. All of these things were developed because of radar. And and an incredible number of Nobel Prizes were generated out of technology was then applied to science. Now, so is there something like a national emergency today? And I would say yes, there is. There is an international emergency. And I believe arguably the most important problems that science and technology must solve is how to mitigate and adapt to climate change. And so this is taken from the Stern Review Report. This is degrees centigrade and what might happen with increasing probability if, um, the world warms up. Now, uh, the Stern Review Report gives um, the world about, if we continue as business as usual, it predicts there's a 50% probability, so I guess it's not a prediction, but it's it's a probability, that in this century, the average temperature of the world will go up by five degrees centigrade. Now, five degrees centigrade doesn't sound like that much, but you have to understand that where we are today in the world and what it was like in the ice ages was only about a five or six degree centigrade difference. And so in the last ice ages, let me remind you that New Haven was covered year-round in a glacier as was New York City, as was much of Pennsylvania and Ohio and so on. So a sheet of ice was covering all of Canada down to mid not states and it was only six degrees different. So if we go six degrees warmer or five degrees warmer with some reasonable probability, if we don't start acting, uh, in technical terms, one could say that the world is in deep doo-doo. So this is something of great concern. And um, one of the reasons why, and the major reason why I uh, left Stanford to take the job at Lawrence Brickley Lab is that if one can convince some of the very best scientists to use their intellectual horsepower to work on this energy problem, both on the energy efficiency side, but also on creating new clean sources of energy, then real progress can be made much more quickly. And you know, Berkeley Lab and UC Berkeley is, is not a bad place. In, today, for example, in Berkeley Lab, uh, we have 85 members in the National Academy of Sciences in the laboratory. That's 4% of the entire membership. So there's a lot of intellectual horsepower. And and one of the things we're concentrating on is how do you use the sun's energy to make uh, a cheaper form of electricity than we now have, and how do you make better transportation fuels? And so here we have, for example, two scientists, Pei-Dun Yang, who won the Waterman Prize. That's a a prize given by the National Science Foundation each year to a single person in all branches of science. It's a million-dollar grant to do research and he won that. Um, Paul Avasaras, who's one of the uh, gurus of uh, 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 nanotechnology. In fact, I saw Lou Bruce uh, walk in today. Uh, Lou is uh, the guru. And Paul Avasaras was his postdoc when uh, Lou was at the labs. And um, these people are spending much of their effort trying to develop a now a very inexpensive photocell, perhaps made using plastic nanotechnology. We don't know whether this is going to yield anything new, but if you get people of this caliber and others like them, uh, you have a shot of getting something radically new and different. Um, we are also working on biotechnology. And BP um, decided to invest in University of California, Berkeley, Berkeley Lab, and University of Illinois. Uh, and so we have a grant of uh, half a billion dollars for 10 years to develop new forms of biofuels. Um, we also uh, were lbNL was lead institution in uh, getting a grant from the Department of energy. This is twenty five million dollars a year for five years, but we expect it's going to be renewed so a similar amount of money again for biofuels what's nice about the BP grant is this is the apportionment the rough apportionment of the two thousand and eight budget you know on on um, feedstocks and environment so this is you know Better plants and fuel production processing, but here look at this big slice socioeconomics, maybe one eighth of the pie what's socioeconomics it's the unders- how do you understand the social economic environmental implications of biofuels so that you do it in a, a sound environmentally sound way and so you, you don't that the cure is not worse uh, than the disease and so um, What's nice about this is that BP is allowing virtually all of the work to be openly published any graduate students postdocs faculty members who work on this um, uh, will it will be uh, openly published it, so BP is going at this with the attitude of a bell Laboratories this is a joint bioenergy institute uh, it's the same sort of thing um, this is called uh, there's divine uh, divisions. This happens to be called the deconstruction division. I think it means something different at Yale than uh, uh, in our institute. And this is how you break down plant material, cell wall material, where most of the dry, the, where most of the energy is. And so this is a picture, a microscopic picture of a cell wall switchgrass. And then you put it in some funny so-called ionic liquid where it, and it magically breaks down. And after a few hour, hours of soaking in this stuff, these dark strands are the pure sugars, the cellulose and hemicellulose, and all the protective stuff, the molecules of so-called lignin, can be washed away. And so we think this would be a a much, much better way of breaking down the plants. Within six months after the start of these institutes, our scientists have trained, I shouldn't say trained, they, they altered the genetic makeup of yeast and bacteria to not to use, normally yeast, you, you feed sugar to yeast, and you appeal to a 5,000-year-old technology called fermentation, and then the yeast turns the sugar into eth- ethanol, alcohol. And then you separate out the ethanol. And about 5 8% percentage, the yeast begins to slow down, and about 15% or so ethanol, uh, the alcohol actually kills the yeast. So what we have developed are yeast that can take these simple sugars and generate jet fuel, diesel fuel, and gasoline fuel. And they self-separate from water because oil and water don't mix. Now, it's not commercially viable yet. And so in the next four or five years, we hope to say, okay, how do you get all the energy of the yeast or bacteria to, to take these simple sugars and create the diesel fuel? And it just with the same um, ferocity that yeast generates ethanol. But because this stuff self-separates from water, you can have them and they just generate the stuff and you just skip it off the top. So again, it's it's encouraging because this actually occurred in the first half year when we started to do the research. So so there's hope that we can, maybe in five years, generate something that we can begin to test in other something other than a laboratory condition. In the end, biofuels is not going to be the answer to transportation fuels, especially as China, India, Mexico, and other countries rise in their standard of living. And so here we have um, an example of how humans learn to do something slightly better than nature. This is from a sketchbook of Leonardo da Vinci studying how birds fly. And then he would invent this little contraption. The idea in this little inset is that you put yourself into this thing, you get near a cliff, you jump off the cliff, you wiggle your arms and legs and hope for the best. Um, And so that was the idea in those days. However, the first powered flight was not using muscle power. It was a hybrid solution. It used a gasoline engine. This is the Wright brothers plane. And the reason I'm showing you this picture is the Wright brothers plane. you see the wings are warped. And this warping of the entire wing was something that was thought of, that's what big soaring birds do. They warp their wings and that's how you control the flight. And the Wright brothers used this. But they used a gasoline engine because they thought it was better than human muscle. There are many other aspects of this plane that kind of followed from birds. Um, for example, a bird doesn't have a, you know, if you look at a 747, it has a huge horizontal stabilizer, this big tail thing in the back. Birds don't have that. They have this, you know, they have a, their wings, and in the back they have another thing that goes like this. And same with the Wright brothers plane. they had a thing, everything was horizontal. Now, I'm not really a biologist, but I suspect that if you have a huge horizontal vertical stabilizer, uh, you can't mate as well. And and so when you build 747s, you give up the idea that 747s are gonna mate, lay little 747 eggs that grow into big 747s. Okay, you can't have everything. But you can have other things, and the gen engines and the 747 the turbine blades are made of single crystals of metal. And so for in many respects the 747s were better for our purposes than a big bird. And so the idea we've started on now uh, is to use nanotechnology in the, and just say okay what does a plant do? It takes sunlight and it uses various molecular machines to convert sunlight into chemical fuel. And the first important step in this is you use the energy from sunlight to take water and split it into oxygen and hydrogen ions, and then later form a hydrogen molecule. And from that you begin to uh, assemble a hydrocarbon. So we're saying, okay, just like 747s, but you start with the Wright brothers, can you make a nanotechnology system that takes sunlight and uses sunlight energy to directly split the water, into oxygen and hydrogen, and forget about the self-reproduction and laying seeds and all these other things because now you can use materials that are not accessible to nature. Now this is a longer term project. No one is promising we can deliver something commercially viable in five or ten years, but maybe in the long run this is how you make chemical fuel because now every precious drop of water can be converted uh, and plants aren't that efficient. So. Let me stop and leave you with this image. It's a very famous picture taken um, for the first mission that went around the moon, Apollo 8. And when the astronauts came back from the far side of the moon, they took this beautiful picture of what's now called Earthrise. And what you see is a very desolate moon, a very inviting Earth. And the take home message is we should take care of our planet because as you see, there's nowhere else to go. With that, I'll stop. This lecture was presented in the fall of 2008 as part of the Tanner Lectures on Human Values. The Tanner Lectures are presented annually at select universities and were established by Obert Clark Tanner as a means of contributing to the intellectual and moral life of mankind. Stephen Chu spoke on October 30th, 2008 at the Whitney Humanities Center.